welcome to episode 16 of the Rising Edge DNO podcast with me, Richard Kutcher, and your host, Owen Dacey. Owen, we are recording this in the period often cringely referred to, I think, as betwixtmas, but I believe you're very much working hard in the Rising Edge offices as we speak. Yeah, of course, Richard. The uh, claims world never stops, so uh, working through, but, but no complaints at all. Good stuff. So uh, we're off the back of a two-parter on employment practices, liability and disputes. And now we are on to the topic of corporate governance. Owen, why are we talking about corporate governance? Yeah, so we wanted to talk about corporate governance, firstly, because of its its obvious relevance to DNO insurance. I think because often you know, it's, it's viewed as that kind of, in, it can be viewed as an indicator of, of higher risk if it's not done well. Um, also think it's an interesting area because of the conflicting views, opinions out there and practices. Um, and what I mean by that is those uh, people, maybe businesses that see it as a compliance thing and others who who utilise it to drive value and performance of the business. So we wanted to explore that further with an expert in this area. So, Owen, who do we have joining us for this discussion? So we have two guests. Our, our first guest is Sarah Bell. Uh, Sarah is a partner at the firm Grant Thornton. Um, she's also part of the leadership team, and she has extensive experience advising large organisations on um, improvement of their governance framework, governance frameworks, and organisational um, and business model designs. She's also involved in the production of a yearly report that Grant Thornton do, uh, which is basically a survey of of all the annual reports across the FTSE three hundred and fifty. It's called Corporate Governance Review Report. Essentially, that. They analyze and track, capture best practice and emerging government trends. So she's really well placed to talk to us about this topic. We've also got the Rising Edge CEO, Philippe Gouraud, as a, as a guest. He is there. Um, he's here to provide his views and perspectives as a CEO, obviously, of a, of a regulated company in the UK. And, of course, running a DNO specialist underwriting agency. So he, he's bringing that underwriting perspective as well. Fantastic. Well, we should say this is another two-parter. So this is the first half of the instalment of this conversation. But let's get into this corporate governance chat with Owen, Sarah and Philippe. So Sarah, as a starter for 10, what does strong corporate governance mean? Um, Can you break it down for us? Well, I'll try. (laughs) Perhaps I think I'm best to start with what do I mean by governance first? I think many confuse governance as a compliance-based exercise, which is only really relevant to large listed organisations. However, the perspective of what I'm speaking about today, it's really a decision-making infrastructure of an organisation. I think much like culture for me, governance exists in all organisations. It's just some intentionally choose to shape it to deliver best results across its resources. I think also it's often helpful when describing what do I mean by components of good, strong governance. For me, I think the framework of the UK code is a typical place to start, looking at its five key principles around leadership and corporate purpose. I think division of responsibilities, composition, succession and evaluation, which really looks at that top sort of leadership um, space. It's also the audit risk and internal control environment that's created and remuneration, how people are incentivized to act and how they are rewarded. I think governance and the decision-making frameworks it underpins are the foundations of trust. Organizations and stakeholders really do need 
for capital and other capital resources, not just finance, I'd be saying here, to be optimised effectively and for accountability or stewardship on how resources are considered to be used in the best way to create value for stakeholders. So now coming on to the actual question of strong governance. I think strong governance is when there is a clear framework or approach which ensures decisions are made in a transparent way and delivers effectively against strategic objectives and therefore optimises the value generated, again, I'll say from the various capitals, because I think we work in a world now where it's not just financial capital, we've got human capital, we've got natural capital, etc. I think embedded within decision-making structures, governance can bring a sharper focus to strategic objectives. It can also prevent the development of microculture where misaligned or inconsistent decisions are made, which I think results in the inefficient use of capital because it's applied in many directions. However, I think my issue is I think companies only give governance the attention it deserves when something goes wrong. I think I'll just make one final point. I think something that was interesting to observe over the pandemic was an increased adoption of various aspects of the UK code, which I referred to earlier. And we saw many more companies adopting it, I think, because they were trying to navigate uncertainty and it provided a really interesting framework or a reliable framework in which to navigate areas perhaps and an environment perhaps people hadn't been faced with before. Okay, great. And can you talk to us um, about the connection there between corporate governance, strong corporate governance and value creation? And when I say we're talking about value creation, we mean generally the success of a, of a company. Yeah, sure. So I think um, intuitively, I think most of the business community would see some form of governance as critical to growth. However, I think I alluded to it last time. I think it only gets the attention it deserves once something's gone wrong. But interestingly, um, before the release of the updated code, which became effective in 2019, at Grant Thornton, we undertook our own empirical analysis of the corporate governance data we've collected over the last 20 years to review whether we could actually demonstrate a linkage between those rated with strong governance, and we refer to them as our top quartile population, I guess you'd say, and the subsequent financial performance compared with those in the bottom quartile of our data set. And we looked at that over a 10-year period. And the output was quite interesting, actually. I think in summary, we found that companies with strong governance both created more value and retained more value when compared to those with weak governance, um, to prove this, we chose a bucket of sort of 20 financial and operational indicators, all of which demonstrated a probability of recurring greater than 20, oh, sorry, greater than 70%. If it was 20%, it obviously wouldn't have been great findings. And then we could see improvements in operational and financial performance, which was quite interesting, following improvements in corporate governance. So those that shifted their governance score in the bottom quartile, we subsequently saw stronger financial um, performance in the preceding year, oh, sorry, in the following years. So, as part of the study, we also concluded that the UK code, which is ultimately based on the distillation of governance best practice in the market, is also a reliable bl blueprint from which companies can base their governance design. Just to give you some more granular statistics to sort of champion the case for change around strong governance, I think in terms of that value creation, companies with strong governance we found were 29% more efficient at generating profits with the financial resources they had allocated to them. Companies with strong governance were 43% more efficient at making and selling products and services. 
companies with strong governance generated 3.4 times more cash flow from their operations. The top performing governance companies also doubled return to shareholders over that period. And companies that progressively improved their governance score, which I was referring to below from the sort of bottom and up through the quartiles, generated 44% more operating cash flow and 46% increase in free cash flows and a 10% higher operating efficiency. So we felt that study was quite interesting in trying to prove that linkage. Obviously, it's not a perfect world because you have many macro movements in the market. I think the other thing we also looked at is how do those stronger performing companies also retain value? Because governance is not just about the value creation. It also helps protect and retain value. And around that particular subject, we found that the top performing governance companies are 15% less financially leveraged, ultimately suggesting a better ability to pay off long-term debts. Companies with strong governance also had 25% more liquidity. And they also, as I mentioned before, had stronger cash flows. So it was quite an interesting um, output, which we felt really did champion the cause for governance. Some incredible stats there. I mean, it's really interesting. So when you talked about, I mean, just protecting the value as well, that's an interesting point there. I just thought I couldn't help but think of FTX immediately where they created so much, or they, they, they created so much perceived value and then the downfall, they very much fell to, to protect it. Absolutely. I mean, a, a great example of that would be BP in the Deep Horizon scandal. Yeah, you could see the value that was dissipated within moments of getting communications wrong to market and the approach um, to an environmental disaster completely wrong. I just had like a, a question. I mean, the, the statistics and the, the anal- analysis that you've done is, is, is remarkable. Is it based on kind of the aspiration of these companies in terms of designing uh, and implementing good governance? Or is there an element of how they actually live these principles on a day-to-day basis? Because we, we understand, for example, that uh, when you look at the regulated business um, businesses, the uh, regulators have, if you put yourself back like 15 years or something, they were kind of measuring uh, things based on like, how many meters of governance and, uh, and compliance binders you had on your shelf, right? I mean, uh, five meters is good, seven meters is better, one meter is not enough, right? But now we've moved on from there in terms of it's not only about kind of like producing papers and ring binders. It's about like, okay, show me, give me evidence that you actually are living these um, uh, principles to to, to the full extent. So how do you measure that? It's a very interesting question, actually. And we get challenged a lot by companies when we provide them our benchmarking analysis from our database. And they said, well, now, what can you tell us about articulated practices? You know, how has that actually lived and breathed in the organization? And interestingly, we have played back messages of where we feel there are weaknesses and they've been quite shocked we've been able to tell to tell that, I guess, from what they put out there in the public. And for me, it's about looking at the interconnectivity of the data sets. I think, you know, when you were referring to the binders before, that was possibly very much done on a silo basis. And one of the binders would have been about internal control process. One of the binders probably was about people. One of the binders was probably about strategy. But those three binders probably did not interlink or interconnect. And so when we are looking at our data sets, what we are looking for is that interconnectivity to see that it is lived and breathed within the organization. And one of the interesting areas I'll give you an example on at the moment that we're keeping a close eye on is around the ESG space. 
a lot of companies at the moment saying, you know, this is of strategic importance to our company, it's absolutely vital, yet we don't see them measuring in their principal risks. We don't see them, um, any measures in their KPIs. And equally, we're not seeing a linkage through to remuneration, which obviously is a key driver in behaviours within an organisation. So for me, it's really making sure you look at the holistic end-to-end story. Everything from, as we say, that value creation um, statement around strategy, around the business model, around to the how, I guess, of culture, values, and what they measure with reward. But equally, how does that link into risks? How are risks monitored? And how do those KRIs and KPIs link together? And equally, again, how does that feed through to remuneration? So for me, it's looking at a holistic and more integrated model of governance. And you should be able to get some pretty good insight from the articulation. Another great example I'll give you, I think if you look back at the Carillion annual reports, and if you were to look at their various governance disclosures on a standalone basis, so if you just looked at strategy on its own and or just risks on its own and or, you know, it looked like a lovely and pretty document. But if you looked at the whole story together, it didn't talk to each end of the various binders that it had. It was all very singular binders. How can a company then evidence this interconnectivity that you're, you're describing? Because for example, from a, um, uh, a, a DNO risk underwriting standpoint, that's the kind of stuff that an underwriter is interested in, right? I mean, everybody can read an annual report, but in terms of like uh, where things go wrong is that these uh, guidelines, principle designs are actually not uh, followed. So before it happens and one realizes, oh, okay, it was really well written, but uh, they didn't really actually pay any attention to it in how they were conducting their business on an everyday basis. What an underwriter would love to be able to do is to identify, you know, before the incident happens, is the company actually living that governance to, 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 to the full? And I guess companies would be really interested, as you said, you know, when you engage with them in terms of the, the, the benchmarking exercise. But from an underwriting standpoint, what should be the right question we should be asking? I think ultimately I would refer back to the UK governance code and I mentioned those five principles. And I think underwriters should be looking at questions under those five principles and seeing the interconnectivity right across the piece. You know, I sort of mentioned leadership and purpose was one of them, division of responsibilities, audit risk and internal control. So ultimately in that leadership section, you know, how are you talking about culture? How are you talking about strategic objectives, business values? And then are you seeing that come through and connected to your principal risks? So the things we would expect to see are signposting, ensuring that you can show that the principal risks are connected to the strategic objectives. Um, For me, it's just making sure you look at those sort of five principles and develop a question set, which looks at the interconnectivity or interplay between each of those five. I think if they give you chapter and verse in one and can't demonstrate the connectivity through the other areas, then there are concerns. Thanks, Sarah. So we'll move on to the challenges and obstacles. We understand from the data telling us it's extremely important with value creation. What are the challenges and obstacles for companies for ensuring or implementing strong corporate governance? I think, you know, I'll now sort of move away from the report and kind of the lived and breathed experiences, as you both referred to, you know, what do we see when we get sort of pulled into companies in terms of what have been the obstacles or what has fallen down in terms of either getting that governance design to work practically on a day-to-day basis. And for me, one of the key challenges we observe is the lack of a clear strategy and purpose. We kind of call that the sort of 
the why and the what. I think these two elements together should be seen as the foundational guiding framework from which the governance infrastructure is built or should hang off. For me, you know, the governance, also the culture as well as the kind of the how, and it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And equally, governance is not just about framing rules for decision-making. It's about letting people know why and how decisions are to be made and how this fits into shaping and impacting the purpose and how that impact is going to be monitored. And I think without that really clear, cohesive strategy that is understood right throughout the organization, you will not have a very effective governance design. People will start creating their own microcultures, as I referred to before, and do all their own ways of working, which starts to create inefficiency within the business. I think also other challenges that we often see is people not dynamically updating governance structures alongside revisions to strategies. I think you know, we need to realise companies are not static, timeless institutions. You know, they need to be dynamic. They need to be entrepreneur-led, market-driven, fast learning, and particularly at the current moment, very adaptive. And the discipline of corporate governance has to start with where you're at on your corporate trajectory. We often sort of get pulled into organisations that sort of say, look, you know, we, we can't understand why strategy is not getting traction in the organisation. You know, it's not been effectively implemented. And the question is not so much about the strategy, it's how have you set up to let people make decisions that are better aligned to the strategy? And often we will see that there is governance infrastructure that hasn't been touched for the last 10 years. We'll see the same sort of decision-making infrastructures, we'll see the same terms of reference, delegated authorities, same risk appetite. And these might not necessarily align to the new strategy that's been revised. I think just to round off on some other areas, I think these largely relate to implementation ineffectiveness or resistance to change. I think the and, and that comes down to the inability to get the case for governance understood and brought into systemically across the organization and also the cultural work that needs to go alongside that. Next would be, I think, back to that binder example that you gave. I think people approaching governance in a siloed manner. And so sometimes what we'll see is this great risk framework, very complex, built up from the bottom of the business all the way up. Yet there is no sort of top-down strategic push back into the business. So often, you know, we've seen people, organizations of about sort of 16,000 in size around the globe, yet people risk is not one of the principal strategic risks. Um, equally, you know, we've seen people miss a trick around data technology and cyber. And I think there is increasing risk around the ESG space there as well. I think just to round off then, I think also the other area would be around establishing the right board and really ensuring it's got clarity around its role, its purpose, and it doesn't stray into the role and work of the executive. Because again, you start to see inefficiency within decision-making and also role modeling of a poor culture to the rest of the organization. Boards are getting increased pressure to have diversity of views such that you can get richer debate and a better decision. But um, there are many situations where we've seen a perfect diverse board on paper, yet our experience when we went into the organization is the least diverse conversation that we've ever heard. So for me, those would be some of the obstacles to watch out for in terms of that gap between good governance and strong governance. Great. And then just, just kind of expanding on that a little, with, you know, implementation takes time, 
cost, effort, multifaceted issues. It's difficult. What are the arguments of those people who may disagree with this whole concept that this this strong corporate governance is a is a um, helps create value and protects value? Um, and then, what are your views on those arguments? What what do you hear coming back? Sure. Well, I mean, I think you've just obviously alluded to the biggest one, which is obviously, you know, cost, resource, time. And I think I think the second in terms of arguments against is that tension between short term and long term, between that sort of section 172, where we should be driving company for the value and the benefit of all stakeholders, I think, versus that shareholder primacy, you know, stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism. <laughs> Um, and for me, both those arguments are very short-term in nature, so they're not necessarily wrong, but they aren't necessarily right um, for a, hor- a time horizon that may be longer than three years. Um, and I think also both arguments are slightly outdated because since the pandemic, I think there's also been a major societal shift where the licence to operate has evolved significantly over the lockdown period. Equally, um, with the advances in technology that we've had, transparency compared to where we were, again, five, 10 years ago, is an increasing pressure point for companies in being able to manage and deal with. I think, you know, there've been many examples provided in press coverage and by the regulators around the benefit and returns seen by purpose-driven companies that shape their decision-making and governance around a wider value proposition. And I think there's also been many casualties in that last 10-year period over those that have really sought to drive profits at the um, cost of governance and taking that sort of shareholder primacy as a singular view from which to run the business. I think the other dynamic to consider in the current environment is also the growing teeth or the backbone of the regulator. So that those that have previously um, had that view, you know, it takes cost and time to get governance right. And equally, we only need to um, look after our shareholders. I think increasingly, again, the world is moving on and there is just a greater expectation of business. And as we said, we have seen an increasing amount of fines um, for both large and small organisations, if I'm honest, where directors and officers are failing to hold up their obligations. The other thing I would also say around just countering the arguments around, well, there's no need for strong corporate governance. I think directors have an ever-increasing complex landscape to navigate. There's growing regulation, market uncertainty, pace of change of technology. We've got ageing working populations, so that working that workforce population is potentially getting smaller for us to attract. Sorry, there's increasing scrutiny from the regulators. And the geopolitical landscape is impacting the resilience of business models at pace at the moment. So as such, I think I alluded to this before, something we did see during the pandemic is the governance framework at least gives an agreed approach from which organisations can navigate uncertainty. Yeah, so COVID was a driver of, of something positive. Um, which is a good thing. Um, <laughs> Definitely an inflection point, I think. No, it makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense what you're saying to me there. Um, absolutely. And just diving into that kind of link, um, talking about the regulators and the regulatory environment, and that's something I think we've um, seen as well and we talk about in terms of um, heightened risk in that area for directors and more scrutiny on individuals. That link between corporate governance then and company or director officer uh, litigation or 
regulator investigations, enforcement action. We think there is a link there, but do you, do you see that? Have you looked into that link between good or poor governance and a follow-on kind of litigation or regulatory investigation? Absolutely. I mean, we've even worked on cases regarding it. So I think, you know, yeah. I mentioned it before, but strong governance is not just about an organization's ability to generate value, but it also underpins an organization's ability to protect and retain value for stakeholders. And by that, I mean, it it doesn't just provide, I guess, that transparency for stakeholders, but it also provides an audit trail around decision making. So I think, you know, from what I've experienced, there's clearly an interplay between weak governance and litigation outcomes. And um, assessments of the corporate governance system in such situations provides context within which a state of mind assessment is made, such as did they do it in good faith in accordance with the policies, procedures, culture, et cetera, or was it reckless? And governance plays a key role in trying to define what is quite difficult lined tread between the two. I think often cases regarding corporate control that you do look into, the, the thing that you, the questions you'll ask yourself is where, did, where, did, where was the information originated? How and where was the information disseminated and was that in accordance with how the governance and decision-making infrastructure is set up? Who recognised and reviewed the information and did they have the right authority, et cetera? Where did the information flow and was it consistent, again, with the policies, with the culture, with the ways of working? In what form did the information arrive at the relevant decision maker within that governance structure and was that the right person? And I think whether the decision was made according to the standard that would normally apply to individuals in that position or was it and also whether it was undertaken with reference to the company's strategic objectives, purpose, values, risk frameworks, etc. So I do think um, you know, strong corporate governance, if it's done well, can help mitigate fines or proceedings in these sorts of situations. And sorry, one of the things I was going to say, I mean, which you alluded to, but I mean, don't quote me on this, but I think in 2021, companies had to pay out, I think, over half a billion in directors and officers fines in the UK from various bodies such as the FS, SFO, FCA and ICO. And equally, I think we're seeing particularly regulators are also increasing fines within the small to medium business space, particularly right. around data handling, actually. Well, thank you to Owen, Sarah and Philippe for the first half of that discussion. We'll be back in two weeks time with the second part where we'll have Owen's key takeaways as well. See you soon.